All right. Um, welcome. My name is Paul. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And uh, man, those were some great testimonies. Thank you to the five of you for working on those and sharing those. It's hard to go up in front of everyone and share those stories. Um, and uh, actually, uh, Stella's story, I thought, uh, connected with me and, and actually, um, I think, addresses why we're doing this sermon series. We're starting a new series called We Are. And I, I really related to the struggle that she had with kind of asking the question, who am I? Um, and because that question comes with a lot of negative answers in this world and in our own heart. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a stranger to that, those questions. I'm not a stranger to the search for self-understanding. Uh, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, I kind of had this identity crisis where I, didn't, I realized I didn't know who I was. I was like, who am I? Who's Paul Nunez? I just was kind of going through life, kind of having fun, going to the next thing. You know, I was on staff with crew. I was married. And the funny thing is, if you know my wife, Jamie, she's very good at knowing her mind. She knows what she likes. She knows what she wants. And I was going through our marriage the first six years like, all right, whatever, honey. Sure sounds good to me. But it occurred to me that I didn't know myself very well. And so um, I was actually having some struggles. I was actually, it was actually causing me uh, kind of a crisis of identity. And so um, I did some things to deal with that. I went on Pinterest. I was like, you know what? I like those shoes. I'm going to click like. I like that hairstyle. That looks like some fun things to do. So I, I, I retook the Myers-Briggs. I retook the Strength Finders. I was, went on this search. And as much as those tools helped me, I sensed they were only partially right. Um, you know, they are subject to a lot of subjectivity, those tests. I needed something a little more solid. And so a pastor uh, who, who saw my struggles, he suggested I reread Psalm 139 over and over again and pray through it. Because it had this passage in it that said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that passage is for all of us. And I was, I was having a hard time believing it. I thought that was true for everyone except me. Isn't that crazy? It's not rational. And so I needed to hear God's word, something solid that said, no matter what you're going through, this is true about you. This is true about you. And that's what this series is about. We want to know who does God say we are. And it's not just who you are, but that what is the common identity we share together? Because we want to live in and lean into that identity as a community. Who we are together. And so to answer that question, we're going to trace the biblical story from the beginning. The story of mankind begins in Genesis. So if you want to know what does it mean to be a human being, you got to go to Genesis. It answers fundamental questions as to who are we. But that story actually goes on through the Old Testament. It's a story of God's plan of redemption. And at every key point, there is an aspect of God's story of redemption that connects with our stories and tells us who we are. 
And that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is one perfect, beautiful unity. And it's a story that helps us tell a story about who we are and who God is. So we're going we're gonna to go through that together. And we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 3. Right, Genesis chapter 3 answers the question of what went wrong. Chapters 1 and 2 answer the question of who are we, what is a human being, and it's, you get key ideas like we are made in the image of God, right, which means that we are special, we are valuable to God, we're like God, we have many of his qualities, unlike many of the other animals that God, and other parts of the creation, we're special, we have a, a, we're, we're meant to be in relationship with God, we're meant to have dominion over the earth, and um, he made us male and female. There's a beautiful wedding in chapter 2. Adam sees the woman for the first time and he breaks out into poetry. And, and then it ends with they're naked and unashamed. Paradise is complete. And God looks at all of that and he says, it is very good. Creation is very good. And the pinnacle of that is human beings. He loved what he created. But something went horribly wrong. And we're still feeling the devastation of that today. Why are we suffering? Why is the world messed up? Why is life hard? What happened to paradise? That's all answered in chapter 3. And most of us know the story, at least in its basics. Whether we go to church or, or we're unchurched, we know the story that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. The serpent tempted them. They ate the forbidden fruit. And because of that, something was introduced into the story. And, that, and it's, a, it's a difficult, it's actually a difficult doctrine to accept. It's the idea of original sin. That because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, because of um, the fruit they ate, and Stella actually, again, she pointed out the, out to, did you know I was preaching on this, Stella? No? Okay. She pointed out that scene in the garden where paradise was lost, as the, as the famous book says. And um, in, in original sin entered the world. What that means, original sin, is that we are not born neutral. Human beings, from that point on, are not born neutral. We're actually born helplessly inclined towards rebellion against God. As all five of the, of the testimonies pointed out, that they were all lost and broken simply by the fact that they were born. And they inherited a sinful nature. That's the doctrine of original sin. It's key to understanding Christianity. And so everybody eventually, irresistibly, inevitably, actually commits conscious acts of rebellion against God. And because of that, we're liable to God's judgment. And the question is, how is that fair? Really? That's how this is set up? That's how God set this up? And so, we need to understand this doctrine of original sin. We need to understand what happened in the garden and how does that get us here to this place where we're worshiping God together? So if we go to chapter uh, 1, I'm sorry, chapter 3. If we jump in, we're going to see we meet the serpent. It says that he is very crafty. He's the, he's the most craftiest, kind of conniving is the idea of all of the animals. And we don't know where he came from, but we know he's there. And he's up to no good. And so we see he approaches the woman 
He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall now eat? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan does two things to Eve. His temptation is kind of multi-pronged. The first thing he does is he undermines her trust in God. Notice that what he does is he does, he says, did God really restrict you from the trees of the, of, of the garden? And of course, no, but he did restrict one tree, right? And so he, and then he says, she, you know, he says, God, uh, the serpent said, you know, you're not going to die. God knows you're going to be like him. God is holding out on you, Eve. So he undermines her trust in who God is and what God says. He actually says, you will not die. You don't need to actually believe in what God says. But notice the second aspect of the temptation. Look at what this fruit will do for you. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. Imagine what you can do with the knowledge of good and evil. Another word, in other words, he gives her a vision of what could be. He gets her imagination going. Imagine, Eve, who you could become. Imagine what you could do. You don't need to rely on God for this. You can get it right now. And she, so he gives her this imagination of what could be. So verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. So the serpent's temptation worked. Um, it, was a, the, you know, it, it was more than just what he said. The, the fruit itself was beautiful. The experience of eating it was wonderful. And of course, what she gained from it, the wisdom from it, was also um, uh, something that she desired. And so all of that together meant that she gave way and she ate. Now, Adam's temptation is a little different. And I want us to notice how quickly this moment happens. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So sometimes Eve gets a bad rap for the story because she was the one that was deceived. She was the one that ate the, the fruit first. And that's partially true, and Scripture will point that out. But I can't help but notice how comical it is, um, the difference between how quickly Adam ate the fruit versus Eve. Have you guys noticed this? I mean, I want you to think about the serpent had to use all of his powers of manipulation to lodge doubt and ignite imagination into Eve to get her to eat the fruit. But all that had to happen was Eve gives the fruit to her husband and he just goes, oh. <laughs> just like that. So both come out not looking great here. But what's going on with Adam? What are we to make of that? I think Adam knew something pretty instantly in that moment. Scripture's clear that Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. 
He knew what this meant. Eve was on the other side now. She had eaten the fruit. She was lost. And so if Eve was tempted with a vision of what could be, of all that she could become, then Adam was tempted by what he could lose. He was tempted by a vision of desperate isolation. And so here we see the funnel temptation of mankind in Eve's temptation and Adam's temptation. One of them was the deepest longings that we all have, the fears that we all have, and this is the point of original sin, is that look what you could become and look what you could lose. Those are the deepest longings and fears of all of us. And so that's the point of original sin. It points to the deepest longings that we all have. Original sin then is not reflective of an unfair punishment, but of our common humanity. We are all Adam and Eve. And we are no match for Satan. For paradise to last forever, man would need to be redeemed and Satan would need to be defeated. So they ate the fruit and immediately there are negative effects. They are ashamed and they, see, they understand their nakedness. And so let's go to verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? I love this interaction here in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve had just committed cosmic sabotage. And notice how God relates to them. He doesn't come barging in angry, tearing up the garden looking for them. He walks in the cool of the garden. So relatable. And he says to them, where are you? I'm looking for you. Where have you gone? Talk to me, Adam. What's happened? I love the way God relates to us. He connects to us where we're at. And so... Um, Adam responds, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so God quickly connects the dots. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so Adam is afraid because he's naked. That's an interesting point to me. He's not afraid because he's guilty. He's not afraid because he did something wrong. He's afraid because he's ashamed. And when God comes to him, he famously blame shifts the woman whom you gave to me. Look what happened. And then the Eve also blame shifts. The serpent deceived me. And what I want us to notice is God goes with it. After Adam blame shifts, he does turn to Eve. What did you do? And after Eve blame shifts, he goes to the serpent and doesn't ask the serpent. 
The serpent is given no chance to explain himself. I think that's instructive. I think there's a degree in which God is saying to both Adam and Eve, you are responsible for what you've done, but actually, you also are a victim. You also fell prey to something. Eve, you used your power. You were Adam's wife. He loved you. You were his special, the special lifesaver in his life, and you used that. And, and God it kind of accepts that. And, and the same with the serpent. Serpent, you deceived her. You took advantage of her. And so this is what happens, the consequences. I'm just going to read this. You're not going to have this. You don't have this up here. I'm just going to read it. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there will be enmity between Satan and the woman's children forever. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat it of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of, out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So just to survey the devastation here. Mankind is destined to be ashamed of our own bodies. Our bodies will no longer work right. We are on our way to death from the moment we're born. We hide from God. We're ashamed and run away from him. We have enmity within our most intimate relationships. We see that the, the, the fan, there's a breakdown in the family and the marriage. Satan is our, our eternal enemy. And work becomes a burdensome toil that will be a thorn in, his, in our side until we die. That's the curse. This is the reality of human living from this point on. And it's still going on to this day. But there's a comfort in this. When things don't go right, we have an explanation. Original sin. A curse has entered the world. There's a sense in which when things don't go right and we have pain in our lives, sometimes that's our fault, yes. But never ultimately. Never ultimately. Ultimately, we have all been subjected to the suffering because of this moment in the garden. So here's what original sin means. It actually means two things. Number one, and we're used to this, if you've been in the church, you've heard this, we all perpetrate sin. We break God's commands. Because of the sinful nature, we all come to a point where we consciously rebel against God. And we're liable, and we're guilty. We're criminals. But, Here's the other part of what original sin means. And we got to bring these two ideas together. we got to live out both of these ideas. We've also been subjected to original sin. That means we are sinful criminals and we are helpless victims. I use that word victim purposely. We don't like that word. Guilt is something we know how to deal with. 
Guilt, we can, I'll make it up for you. I'll pay my debt. I'll do better next time. We don't like the idea that we're victims. Not in the U.S., not in America. Not that we're helpless. But that's what sin means. We are the victims of the sinfulness and the consequences of God's condemnation of that sinful action. And so listen to how Paul applies this. Watch the nuance of how we're supposed to understand that we're sinful. Next slide. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's verse 15. Verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Are you seeing what he's saying? For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, reigned over all of us. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Are you guys, you guys notice this is all, this is verse after verse after verse. As a Bible expositor, I ask Paul, why did you repeat yourself five times? But do you see what he's pressing in? Do you see what he's getting us to understand that, yes, we are all sinners. This verse makes that clear, but why? It also makes it clear because of one man. And so notice the nuance of sin. Yes, it's something we are, we are guilty of. It's also something we're trapped in. We have a sinful nature but it's something we're plagued with. I want us to notice Jesus was caught eating with tax collectors and sinners and they were upset with him and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I, have came, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So notice the way Jesus thinks about sinners as people who are sick, not just guilty, but sick. And so the question is, why have we been subjected to this? Why have we been subjected, all of us, to the pain and the brokenness of sin and condemnation, of death, of the curse on our bodies, and of, of childbearing, and of, of work, and the pain all of us have experienced, and you heard some testimonies of that, that we get to the point where we just want it all to end. Why have we been subjected to that? Because of this moment in the garden. Why? Well, we go back to that repetition. Five verses. Paul says the same thing because he wants to say why that happened five times. Because Paul understands that the doctrine of original sin is difficult to embrace. So five times he's going to say it. So that he could say five different ways the same thing of why it was allowed to happen. For because of one, man, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, therefore, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What appears to be the unfairness of original sin is actually God's plan to give free grace. And so the doctrine of original sin 
that all men, all women, all mankind are born with the sin nature because of one man means that at the same time, all men are redeemable by one man. And that one man has been given to us, Jesus Christ. And so on the cross, Jesus took all the suffering of sin committed and imposed on humanity, and it was imposed on him. And when he rose, he was defeated. So here's what that means. God was setting it up so that our final salvation would not depend on our ability to sin or not sin, as it was with Adam. That was the problem with the garden. That whole scene was dependent on whether Adam and Eve would stand up to Satan because of their own decision. But instead, it would depend on Jesus' ability to sin or not sin. God was doing this, and this is what it means to be redeemed, that your place in paradise is secured by him, not you. That is the good news of the doctrine of original sin. Is that now your place, as much as it was secured to be condemned in sin because of one man, your place with God is now secured by the one man, Jesus Christ. That's why we worship today. That's why God set it up, a plan that he unfolded. It took a long time. We're going to travel that story the next five weeks. Why did God take this time to bring it, set it up? He had to set it up, but he did. And that's why we're here. And so in the garden, eternal life was possible, but not guaranteed. But in Christ, eternal life is guaranteed. And paradise would never be lost again. And so we walk as redeemed. We live as the redeemed. As people who are both forgiven criminals, which we're going to talk about that aspect of forgiven in a few weeks, but also has rescued victims. And I want you to think about what that means about how God relates to you. Because you're not just guilty criminals that when you struggle with sin, because trust me, when you become a Christian, you don't just all of a sudden become a perfect, pure Christian human being. You will still struggle. And sometimes when we struggle, and all we, if all, the only paradigm for sin is that we are guilty criminals, and we go back to our guilt then we can really struggle with shame. And sometimes that's fine, and that's part of it. But it's not just that. It's not just that at all. God also recognizes that we were helpless victims. And so a better way to think about it, the, this is why adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, is imagine the parents, the loving parents, who foster a child in order to adopt them into their home. And that child comes from an abusive home. And because of that abusive home, that abusive, neglectful environment, when they bring that child into their loving home, does the child just all of a sudden perfectly obey all the home rules? No, they, they still struggle because of that abuse. And so when that child, when that child acts out, how do those foster and how do those adopted parents treat that child? What is their posture towards that child? It's compassion. Because they know where that child had been. They know the pain and trauma they had, they had endured. 
And yes, that, that, the parents still want to train them and teach them how to live rightly, but their posture towards that child is compassion. They embrace that child. And so that's why it's important that we understand this doctrine. That because of original sin, we are, yes, we're forgiven, but we're also rescued. And God knows our weakness. He knows that sin is still present in this world. And so as Christians, we only fight sin provisionally, but only Christ will defeat it ultimately. And so walking is redeemed means that we walk in this patience and love and compassion towards ourselves and towards one another. And we long together for when Jesus will, will take sin away. Let me pray. Lord, help us receive this word from you. This wonderful good news that yes, there was horrible, there was horrible news of sin and, and, and the brokenness and Satan's deception and he's continuing to deceive the world. And we all still struggle under the horrors of sin, but we thank you that you've rescued us. Lord, we thank you that you have compassion on us and that you look at us as harassed and helpless and you've brought us into your fold. We are now your sheep and you promised that the Satan will never come in to steal or destroy again. So thank you that we can walk in that identity of redeemed. In Christ's name we pray, amen.